tonight on Arena. Poor Things, The Boys in the Boat and The Beekeeper are the movies up for review and a look at all ten contenders for this year's Choice Music Prize. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena. Thursday night is, of course, film review tonight. What have we got for you? Gothic feminist-ish fairy tale. George Clooney's homage to the Olympic to Olympic rowing, and Jason Statham takes on hackers. Welcome to Arena's Film Reviews. After the success of the favourite, Yargos Lanthimos returns with Poor Things. Undeniably strange comedy uh, uh, with a, a Frankenstein twist to it, starring Emma Stone, Willem Dafoe and Mark Ruffalo. George Clooney's director, uh, director CV continues to grow with this his new adaptation of a non-fiction bestseller called The Boys in the Boat about a legendary University of Washington crew that represented the United States of America at the Berlin Olymp- Olympics in Nazi. Nazi Germany and in The Beekeeper Hollywood action stalwart Jason Statham retreads in an unlikely new occupation the hint is in the title uh, to take on the bad guys in this latest high octane thriller Dee Malumby Dave Hanratty have been watching for us they're with me in studio this evening and let's start with Poor Things adapted from Alistair Gray's 1992 novel of the same name tells the story of Bella a young woman whose consciousness is reset to zero we follow her uh, on her journey as she sees the world through remarkably fresh eyes and (laughs) this is a world directed by the ever singular Yargos Lanthimos produced by our own Element Pictures of course and cinematography from our own Robbie Ryan spoke to him about it a couple of weeks back he did well at the Golden Globes including Emma Stone's win in the musical or comedy category and Oscar nominations cannot be far away um, this is more uh, did I say Dee Malumby and Dave Hanratty I think I did indeed this is more Irish interest for us in the Oscars I think for sure here Dee uh, Killian Murphy of course I think we all mm-hmm. think he's a shoe in there but um, if you can walk me through what Yargis Lanthimos does with kind of Mary Shelley type Frankenstein story Yeah it's kind of a mad old <laughs> st- uh, plot line and even if you go watch the trailer online as I did to kind of refresh my memory of this it's only like something like 90 seconds long and it doesn't give away much um, at all but essentially what we're following is this unorthodox scientist he's a disfigured surgeon as well named Goodwin God as he's also known Baxter uh, played by Willem Dafoe who I believe uh, won the Best Supporting Actor um, Oscar at this year's uh, sorry he won the Best Supporting Actor Golden Globe um, this year but he brings a young woman back to life after she dies by suicide one of God's students Max uh, falls in love with this reanimated woman however uh, this woman whose name is Bella played by Emma Stone ends up being seduced by a lawyer named Duncan played by Mark Ruffalo in I honestly think one of the funniest performances he has possibly ever given um, and she runs away with him. But it's only then does Bella's story really begin and I suppose the whole idea of this film is it's about um, kind of rediscovering your identity and also Mm -hmm. kind of learning about the world for uh, for all of its wonders but also hypocrisies and horrors as well. I think we may have a difference of opinion in studio this (laughs) evening. Um, Let's start with Dr. Good stroke Godwin Baxter. Um, Yargos Lanthimos is not hiding 
of anything from us in this film at all, Dave. He's throwing everything at you. I mean, it's visually incredibly inventive and challenging. It's narratively provocative. And it's filled with these characters that are really heightened. I mean, cartoonish in some ways, in many ways, and very darkly so. This film is going to divide people. And that's its intention. It's quite clear. I mean, it's been described by some people as, you know, Barbie for more complex and emotionally scarred women. It's also been described by some people as an anti-feminist text. And they wonder about the character's journey that Emma Stone goes on and I guess we don't want to give everything away but it should be said that she is in fact a reanimated woman and there are developmental issues with her you mm. could say and it all stems from Willem Dafoe's mad scientist character um, a hell of a character this kind of you know as we say like you know he, like he is physically disfigured he like you know like he has a contraption which he needs to just kind of produce gases and you know you have like all these characters kind of running around in fisheye lens the, it, the film pivots from black mm. and white to fisheye to uh, these very creative colour Scale, uh, like kind of visual, uh, like kind of audio scapes as well. Um, it's a bit of a mess, but by design, and that's the point. It's a Yorgos Lanthimos film. You're not going to get conventional cinema here, and the story itself, it, it's a bit of a hero's journey in a way. But it's going to challenge. It's going to divide. It's going to be polarizing, and that's what they want. Um, you reckon that's what that's what they want? hundred percent. Sure. Yeah. That's what okay. they want. That's, it's it's. Um, you, you mentioned Willem Dafoe. Uh, mm-hmm. Oh, sorry, and you meant you as the, the best supporting actor role. I uh, believe so. Uh, yeah, and yeah. Uh, you mentioned as well Mark Ruffalo. What yeah. about Emma Stone in this Golden Globe Award-winning role? I, isn't she? Yeah? I honestly think she's absolutely terrific. And you know, my money kind of so far this um, award season has been on Lily Gladstone to uh, run away with the Best Actress Oscar for her turn in uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. But honestly, um, so she won in the Golden Globes. People, most people probably know they're divided into best drama and best uh, musical or comedy. So Emma Stone won for her respective section for um, for uh, this film, Poor yeah. Things. And then Lily Gladstone also won. And I do think it is going to be a two horse race when it ultimately comes to that best actress Oscar. I thought she was absolutely terrific in this. I really think it was like the best um, performance she has given um, possibly of her entire career. Um, her character is beguiling, um, horrifying, chaotic and quite disgusting okay. as well, but just absolutely terrific. And I mean, she's worked with um, Yorgos Lanthimos before in his film The Favourite and he really has brought out, I think, a terrific performance in her here. All right, let's have a listen to Emma Stone as Bella, uh, Bella speaking here with Mark Ruffalo's Duncan. This is the kind of sleep easy uh, guy he's a lawyer isn't he yeah he is uh, who basically seduces her that's what he's involved in here but she expresses her dissatisfaction in this scene with the relationship using some colourful language to do so and then well it's the Argos Lanthimos film then they dance to some strange music bit of a non sequitur but that's what they do understand me never lived outside God's house what so Bella's so much to discover and you're Sad face makes me discover angry feelings for you. Right. Become the very thing I hate, grasping succubus of a lover. Tried many of them off me, now I'm it. Fuck. Now, 
even hearing that music, that's um, uh, Mark Ruffalo as Duncan, Emma Stone as Bella in a scene from Poor Things, the Argus Lanthimos movie. That's our first up for review this evening. Even hearing that music, there will be those who will go, I am not going to go within 40 foot of that film unless I absolutely have to. And yeah. there are others who are saying, can't wait to see it. 100%. It's a barrage. And like, you know, January is a strange time for movies. You know, you, you get this kind of, you get, you get strange action movies. We're going to get onto one of them mm-hmm. as well. But you get these art house kind of gems and, you know, it came out in the States about a month ago. Um, and I'm very interested to see how an audience will take to this because like I keep saying it is designed to challenge and it does so successfully in some ways and unsuccessfully in others I think I think Emma Stone's performance is absolutely incredible it's magnetic um, it's the definition of a fearless performance and she throws herself quite literally and quite often into this with reckless abandon and you see this character grow again quite literally from 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 a childlike being to a full-fledged adult mm. with her own agency across this two and a half hours and Emma Stone is just I mean it's so and, commanding and Mark Ruffalo Mark Ruffalo is an actor I quite like. I no, say. There. <laughs> so there's the there's the first bit. There's now the, the fame bit. I think this is maybe his worst performance, and I'm stunned at the critical buzz and Oscar buzz it's getting. Every time he was on screen, I was like, "Oh, I get it, Mark. You're doing the the you know the kind yeah. of cartoonish, you know, mustache twirling, you know, heightened Englishman." And this thing is set in you know alternative Victorian Britain, so they're all doing that. But the more he it went on with him, the more I just thought, "Man, oh no, this is not it. This is not you know that bit in Spotlight that everyone quotes where he like it's, it's give me the Oscar moan that he does." This film is a man begging for for awards, and I just thought it was well, misjudged it thoroughly. Okay, well he was, beg- he, was beg- he was begging for the Golden Globe as well, wasn't he? In fact, Willem Dafoe and Mark Ruffalo were both nominated for the Best Supporting Actor. It was Robert Downey Jr. Sorry, in my fact, mistake. who, who yep. won it for Robin Hammer. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, I think you're you were pro Ruffalo. You would love I to have seen him Ruffalo. walking away. I thought he was terrific in this. I don't know. I I yeah. I suppose I can understand what you're saying. Um, Dave, uh, from the perspective of, um, yeah, that kind of Oscar grabby nature to the uh, performance and everything. But I don't know. I I thought he was exquisite. I thought he was so dastardly. He was so enjoyable. The audience that I saw it with were laughing every time he was on screen. I thought he was great. And then watching his insecurities and his lack of control just become increasingly apparent and watching that character completely break down. I just thought it was it was a lot of fun. Um, But yeah, I really, really did enjoy uh, this film. I mean, it is mad. It is possibly Yorgos Lanthimos's most surreal work to date. So you kind of have to a lot. <laughs> you have to go into this knowing this. If you yeah. watched and loathed the likes of The Favourite, Killing of a Sacred Deer and The Lobster, this is not going to be the film for you. But I also thought that it was as crazy as it is absolutely beautiful. Okay, so stars? I'm going to give it four out of five stars. I think this is a really hard film to shake and yeah, it's, per- it's spectacularly cinematic. I think it does have a chance of winning uh, the Best Picture Oscar because I think this year in particular the nominations are going to split voters okay. I just haven't seen one running away with it and this could sneakily could, win could sneakily win you had your hand up to I make a retort say, and a quick retort <laughs> I, was in, I was in that audience with a raised eyebrow as opposed to a, a hearty laugh whenever Ruffalo was doing his thing um, I'm conflicted by this one I'm really glad it exists I think Emma Stone is brilliant I think Will and Defoe is great it's great that original films are being made with this budget and this level of commitment and passion at times though I felt it was desperately repetitive um, and I thought that it kind of ran out of steam halfway through and it did feel like men explaining okay. feminism to me and it was a bit kind of like you yeah. felt mansplained I mean like and I'm, here I'm a man critiquing a feminist film but I just thought it was a bit too didactic and it's okay. a 3 out of 5 for me uh, what was the line you said about um, I, I'm glad it exists do you think that'll make it to the poster uh, <laughs> a, a bit too didactic should make it to the poster yeah. glad it exists
that is the, that is uh, the uh, poor, poor things. First of our films up this evening. Let us move on to the boys in the boat. Uh, director this time, George Clooney. He's acting in it as well, but he takes us back to the 1936 Olympics with the true story of the United States rowing team, a cast of plucky underdogs who had hurdle after hurdle to overcome to get to Berlin. Not a single cliche in that sentence that I uttered there. Um, (laughs) Dave, I presume none in the film either. Oh, man. I'm going to be the bad guy on this episode because, I mean, George Clooney is a wonderful actor. As a director, I don't know. And this is his ninth feature film. He's been making films as a director since 2002. Largely, you know, puts himself in the cast as well. Um, He's the king of dadcore, is what I would say. Like, this is a film to watch with your dad on a Sunday afternoon. It's not going to challenge you at all. It's going to tick the boxes. The camera's where it needs to be. The actors have all learned their lines. And it'll give you a nice feel-good ending with some big strings and some commendable performances, but you won't be challenged whatsoever. All right. Um, I'm guessing there are loads of guys here who've never been near a rowing boat in their life, and they're going to get in and be a team and pull together, dare I say it, and, (laughs) and, and possibly win. Yeah, yeah, I suppose that's the idea here. I mean, it was, I have to say, I had kind of a surreal experience watching this movie because there are actually rowers in my family, both my dad, Rose, and uh, my youngest sister, Rose, too. And one thing that I will say for this film is I did think that the race scenes were done particularly well. I think that the film only really gets kind of proper momentum and gets properly exciting once the boys have their first race. Mm. Rowing is a notoriously challenging sport to bring to life on camera because it simply isn't that exciting to watch. You're either standing on the side of the banks and then the boats go by and then you're kind of, you know, straining to see what's happening there. Or you have the camera overhead and you're just watching these two lines like kind of, you know, neck to neck and then one surpasses. It's just not that exciting to actually watch. But I thought that the camera did effectively capture the thrills of a rowing race here. I thought that the filming and the editing was quite well done. Um, But one of the problems with this film is that the stakes are never particularly Mm. high. I mean, the team encounter very few adversities and they just keep on winning. And as a result, it it takes away from the degree of suspense, I would say. Well, let's have a listen to a point where Joel Edgerton appears as coach Ulbrichson and he's giving a pep talk to a group of potential rowers and can't explain to them how hard it is to get a seat in his boat. I'm Coach Ulrichson. Well, that's Coach Bowles, Coach Brown. Now, you're all here because we're looking for the eight most qualified young men to fill out JV boat. That means that most of you will not be chosen. In fact, the majority of you will most likely walk away on your own within the next few weeks because your bodies will hurt, your minds will tire, and you'll decide this dream of yours to compete against the greatest crews in the world is just not worth it. And there's no shame in that. Eight-man crew is the most difficult team sport in the world. The average human body is just not meant for such things. It's just not capable of such things. But average is not going to get a seat on my boat. So good luck. No cliches in that speech either. That is no. Joel Edgerton as uh, Coach Edrickson in a uh, scene from The Boys in the Boat directed by George Clooney. But I do get a sense, even as I'm being cynical and not having seen it, that's a little unfair. But I'm guessing that there might be swelling strings, a couple of lumps in the throat and even the odd tear in the eye 
watching this film, Dave Hanratty. You're right on the swelling strings. Um, <laughs> there was no lump in the throat and I'm an easy sell. I really am. And like the thing, when this started off with the swelling strings, I, I thought about like the film Scent of a Woman because I was just like, oh, it's that kind of, you know, light of lightness of touch and there's going to be a journey for the characters and you might feel something by the end of it. But as Dee correctly says, um, the trials and tribulations of these guys are just bizarrely perfunctory on the screen. Um, conflict is resolved when it happens either in the next scene or sometimes in the same scene scene. I was like, can we just have something bad happen to these people? They don't appear to actually have that much adversity and it just becomes a bit monotonous. Uh, performances are fine. Like there's Joel Edgerton, a, a solid hand, yeah. a stern character and Callum Turner, a young UK actor, is kind of our lead here. He's our audience everyman. But also it is called The Boys in the Boat. There are eight of them. And apart from Callum Turner's character, I didn't really get much characterization from the rest of them. They're all just kind of archetypes and they, they look very modern yeah. day as well. It doesn't feel, it doesn't feel authentic to yeah, me. Yeah, and we are in the 19th 36 Olympics we'll come to that in a second but Joe Rance uh, is the character played by Callum mm-hmm. Turner did you, did, did you get to know him did you get to felt you feel you get to, got to know any of the other crew members Dee yeah I kind of have to agree with Dave there in that I wasn't really kind of that invested in any of the characters I mean one thing that I did find myself thinking about one character who wasn't actually there on the screen was though George Clooney because I was watching this film thinking okay so Clooney's last films have been Suburbicon The Midnight Sky and The Tender Bar which many would consider lacklustre and several others would consider total flops so I just thought that this was a really interesting film for George Clooney to pick because I think that it is a real effort to kind of go back to like the basics the crowd pleaser Um, it's a sports drama based on a true story you're looking at underdogs in like this challenging era of the 1930s uh, depression era um, an all-American pride running through so I thought that it was quite interesting and this is his first film since um, because The Midnight Sky and uh, The Tender Bar Bar would have gone Mm. to uh, Prime and Netflix this was his first film you know going direct to cinema so I thought it was really interesting that he ended up picking this very nice feel-good film but also kind of quite like conventional and unfortunately really far from anything extraordinary Are you a fan of of, of George Clooney director are you Dave? Well can I just say you know you know how George Clooney, the actor, the performer, has endless charm. I thought, by the way, I think I said he was in this. He's not in this. He's not in this. No, it's Sorry, a, but in fairness, but, but you're right to be confused because it's a rare occasion. He usually mm. is in his films. I think he's in eight or like seven of the nine that he's made, um, and it's a safe bet. He he always attracts great cast, yeah. great crew, and he has those connections. If I were him, I'd cast him. Yeah, and he's great doing this for fun. And I think what he is getting at is that like he clearly wants a return to the films they don't make anymore. But it's like, but we've seen this film a hundred times, and we've seen it better. Uh, the thing is, Clooney as an actor brilliant uh, yeah. charming charismatic has more range than I think he gets credit for Clooney the director to me is one of the most anonymous filmmakers in the game and he has the playground fair play have a great time with your mates the lack of cultural footprint is astounding in this career I was just I'm going to ask you to uh, briefly the 1936 Olympics, how important is that um, Berlin Nazi aspect of the story? Uh, shows up at the end, including an actor playing Adolf Hitler, which I found very distracting because I assumed they were just going to use newsreels or something. But then you have, uh, let's inject some tension. Let's get Hitler to watch the race and look a bit upset. And I'm like, uh, I don't know. It, it uh, totally, like, totally felt very yeah. bizarre to me. Like this film is so sweet and harmless that even Hitler and the Nazis come off as not that bad. It's kind oh. of crazy. Oh, okay, <laughs> right. yeah. That sounds at all. What a sentence. <laughs> Star. Look, it, I still find myself smiling and enjoying this film, so I would say three out of five. Um, it's a nice movie, like Dave said, to bring your dad to. I, I think that it's it's enjoyable enough. It's fine. <laughs> 
Another one for the poster. What are you saying on this one, it's Dave? A, it's a two all day, baby. <laughs> <laughs> it's a two all day. I'm really looking forward to the posters that are coming out from your two reviews. It's a two all day for the boys in the boat. And it's fine from Deirdre and three stars. That's uh, George Cooney, though. That's the directorial career in a nutshell. I'm no. sorry. I'm sorry, but it <laughs> all is. All right. OK. Let us finally then move on to Jason Statham. Back in The Beekeeper. Uh, he may be tending bees as the film opens, but why do I know that he's not going to be tending bees the whole way through it? So I like Jason Satham, uh, genuinely. Uh, not even a guilty pleasure. I think he's very good at what he does. Now, you know, he's churned out these action films for a long time. This one comes with a ridiculous premise. It's called The Beekeeper, so straight away you're like, what's all that about? He starts off as a stoic man who may or may not have secrets and may or may not have a hidden set of skills, you know, but he's living a quiet life on a property uh, owned by a woman named Eloise, played by the great Felicia Rashad. And he's a beekeeper. He's literally looking after bees and making mm. honey. And he says, he says earlier on to Felicia Rashad, he says, um, you know, you're the only person who's ever taken care of me. So you know that she's doomed. And none, uh, like seconds later, bad things happen to her. And wouldn't you know it, Jason Statham isn't just a beekeeper in the traditional sense. No, no, no. The beekeepers are actually a secret cabal of government elite operatives and no. they've upset him. So it's revenge mission time. Oh, I see. Um, and and t- tell me a little bit more about the cabal. Is is David Witz as Garrett? Is he part of the the nasty bunch? Um. So, sorry, which character? Uh, uh, David Witz, who's playing uh, Garnet. Sorry, Garnet. Oh, he's the guy who scams her. Yes. yes. Oh, so, yes, yeah. that was, uh, sorry. Um, to be honest, the reason why I forget who that character is is because he shows up for about two scenes and disappears, <laughs> which can be said for most of the characters in this movie. Like at one point there is, do you remember, there's like this female assassin who shows up who says that she's the new beekeeper. Jason Statham proceeds to beat her up, set her on fire, and then she's never mentioned again. Like this film is absolutely nuts. Uh, Jason Statham's character of Clay just kind of drops into these random places and situations and meets these characters that appear for about two scenes and just disappear then oh. again. This film is rather terrible to be honest. Alright, let's, let's have a listen to poor David Witz then in one of his few scenes as Garnet, he Jason Statham as Mr Clay is confronting him and guess what, there's a big fight at the end, there's a bit of language in this as well. I'm a beekeeper to protect the hive Sometimes I use fire to smoke out hornets. This is a multi-million dollar operation, asshole. Okay, so you can't come up here white knighting shit. Will you stomp his ass out, please? be great to have sound effects like that when you go to hit somebody in an, in an action movie. This is what this is about, I'm guessing, Dave. It's an action movie and Jason Statham is no better, man. Yeah, no, I like him in this, but it's a strange one because, look, he knows himself. He can't do Shakespeare. He can do comedy, though. He, like He's more ranged than maybe he gets credit for. But, yes, stoic, gruff, angry, beating people up and not taking a single punch. That's kind of the Statham way. Uh, the thing is, and I think he was getting at this, it's like, this does feel like several different scripts shredded together. Uh, mm. It's written by a guy called Kurt Wimmer, who made Equilibrium back in the day, and he's written things like the most recent Expendable sequel, directed by David Ayer, <clears throat> who wrote Training Day back in the day, and has made stuff like Suicide Squad, Fury, um, The Tax Collector, Harsh Times, like lots of kind of bro-y, macho action movies, never better Training Day, which he didn't direct. And people have said it, it's a return to form, and it does seem like it's got a ridiculous premise. It does seem fun. It seems really silly. Let's lean into this. 
But the problem with this film is they don't lean into it enough. It can't decide if it wants to be a grim and okay. gritty, you know, special ops action thriller or a ridiculous John Wick-esque, you know, world of assassins. And that's what it leans into here and there. It's so clearly inspired by John Wick as well. And because it was one foot in, one foot out and never quite made the decision, it doesn't work tonally. It could be... This could be a riotous, ridiculous, go see it in January, guys, but they just, they, they blinked, they blinked. Okay, is, is Jason, uh, could we say Jason Statham is a kind of a Jean-Claude Van Damme for our time? I guess you could. I mean, the thing about his performance here is that it is fine, but he almost seems a bit bored by this right, movie, he, I felt, as he, I was watching it. Does he drone on? Oh, <laughs> see, he bravo. Gets, Waiting all night. <laughs> See, what I would associate the Jason Statham brand is, is that he gets to do the action. Yeah, and he gets plenty of that here. But also, I love the Jason Statham dialogue and you don't get enough of that here. You get, I love when you see that, you know, him deliver those British accented, Ah, sarcastic, witty, quick. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, that's where he's at his strongest, I think. And he doesn't really get a whole lot of dialogue here. They're trying to make him the silent stoic type. And I personally don't think that it worked as well for me anyway. But it was just such a strange movie. It really did. It feel like chunks of like scenes were missing or something. It just made so little sense okay. to me. Um, stars from you on this one. One out of five. It was really Whoa. quite dreadful. <laughs> one out like of it five. was. It wasn't fun. Dumb. It was just frustrating. Dumb. Okay. Clearly no Oscar buzz. Uh, That's two. Uh, like, how do I possibly follow this? Um, I mean, stars. Uh, honey, they shrunk the action because it, it does feel like they kind of uh, like whittled this down to a TV movie. There's characters you don't need. Satan does seem a bit bored. That's the weird thing because I guess he was involved in the passion project making of this. We didn't even get to mention Jeremy Irons and Minnie. Driver oh, yeah, are in, are in this sorry, film yeah. for some reason. Um, it's a tonal. there for a couple of minutes and gone. Like uh, was a mini driver, like on the phone for two scenes, shot her scenes in two hours. I'd imagine Jeremy Irons having a bit of fun with ridiculous dialogue. That it could be ridiculous. They make it too serious. If a sequel happens, which it won't, I'll watch it. Uh, two and a half because when it's dumb and silly and embracing that I enjoyed it but when it's being grim and gritty it doesn't work alright the beekeeper clearly clearly you're not neither you're rushing out to that one again the boys in the boat and the one that divided the house but I think possibly the more, more interesting the most interesting or most interesting of the three that we spoke about of course poor things Dave Hanratty and Dee Malumby our reviewers on this Thursday evening Let us move on, however, 2023, standout year for Irish music, extensive array of brilliant albums, poses a particularly challenging task, I think, for the cha- the judges of this year's Choice Music Prize for Irish Album of the Year. 19th year of the award, established back in 2005 to highlight those albums which deserve some extra time in the spotlight and ultimately to select the album which best sums up the year in Irish music. Uh, Simon Marr has been has been Evening. listening to all all of the albums I have and has spoken to me about a couple of them I think uh, throughout the year as well Simon uh, throughout last year that yeah. was obviously because this year's choice prizes for the albums was last year it was an extraordinary year and when you look at the 10 albums on the list which we're going to go through in alphabetical order in terms of artists so that there's no bias <laughs> and we're going to play a little bit of every one so that there's no bias No that's fair enough that's fair enough No I do think it was a very good year and I do think it's actually a very good list because when you look at the long list you look at all of the Irish albums that were released last year and it was it was a very very good year the idea of being able to chop it down to these 10 I don't think there's any filler on this it's we're, we're in the land of all killer no filler for these 10 albums Now that one I am putting on the poster <laughs> all killer no filler um, and we'll start with uh, 
in alphabetical order, Graham Chatton, Chaos for the Fly. Now, this is Graham Chatton of Fontaine's DC, but yes. in solo mode. Yeah, and it's interesting because when you listen to somebody like Green Chatton, I think he's, he, I don't even think the man has turned 30 yet, but he has both the voice of, and it sounds like the experience of, a man twice his age, but has gone off and has decided now after two full albums with Fontaine's DC, it's time to do the solo record. So that's what he's gone and done, and he's done Chaos for the Fly. And it's, it's not a Fontaine's record at all but it's definitely a green chatting record um, Fairlies or Fairlies the, the track that you've chosen Fairlies I've Fairlies and why is this why is this a standout track for you on I, this album do you know I just think he is a great storyteller and this is a great story to tell uh, and he's telling the story of he's telling the story it's a story about going away leaving and travelling Going away, leaving and travelling. Green chatting Fairlies from Fairlies from his album Chaos for the Fly Kindness is a trick to turn you strange Until you're twisted and you're shining like a varicose vein Lovely, sultry voice there from oh, yeah. Green Chatton and Fairlies from the album Chaos for the Fly, the first contender in alphabetical order for this year's Choice Music Prize. Simon Marr with me in studio. C-Mat, yes. crazy mad for me. Album number two, but you know, the difficult album number two, she blew that out of the water. Oh, absolutely, with with no issue whatsoever. Won the award last year, 2022, yeah. with her, her debut album. And even to be able to turn around, that's one of the struggles that people normally have, is turning around mm. album number two, because there are those struggles. But those, this, this one feels like, and interestingly, it doesn't feel like a load of the other tracks that could have made it onto album number one. It's quite different for what it is. So I suspect a lot of the stuff from album number one may have been two or three years old, even by the time it was released. Whereas this sounds like much more crazy mad for me, sounds like mm. much more of an album for where she is now. Yeah, and she's great with the titles, Crazy Mad for, for me. me. <laughs> Her title, as was the first album, If My Wife Knew I'd Be, be Dead. dead. Um, the, the, the track here is... Where are your kids tonight? Which yes. Seems like something from the previous album in some ways. And this is a collaboration with John Grant. Yeah, you know, she is absolutely, she loves the collaboration, and, but she's always said about people that she feels she wants to work with. And I was listening to an interview with her quite recently. And she was talking about not alone was she interested in working with John Grant, but she said, I love him because of what he does, but I love him for how he sounds. And I think that's the thing that sometimes people get wrong in a collaboration, but this works well. All right, and here's a little taste of that track, Where Are Your Kids Tonight? She may love the sound of his voice, that's a C-Mat and John Grant, but their two voices sit so beautifully oh, it's together. A, it's, there, it's, don't it's incredible the way that that works. Like you know, and it's one of those things that you know yourself. And I'm sure it must be great for her to be in a position where she's able to say, do "You know, who I'd love to do a collaboration with. I'd love to talk to John Grant and to be able to presumably ring John Grant and say, I have this song.'" Because she really did just explode over yeah. the past couple of years. Oh, com- you know? completely, completely yeah. so. Like, you know, and but to be in that position, I think it's brilliant. Yeah. And it's a again, it's a very very, very good album. All right. Uh, that's contender number two, C Matt Crazy Mad for me, talking about the ten shortlisted albums for this year's Choice Music Prize. John Francis Flynn, look over the walls, see the sky. 
he never ceases to amaze me no. what he can do. And he's, he's part of this kind of big movement that involves, includes Lancome and in, in terms of Irish tradition music, contemporary Irish tradition music who are on this list as yeah. well. Tell us about the John Francis Flynn album, first of all. It's like he won the best emerging artist at what seems like, and again, when you hear so many of these records, you think this must be 20 years ago, this guy won mm. an award. And then you go, oh, it's the best emerging artist in 2021. <laughs> so literally 24 months ago, he was, he was, he was winning that award. But it's a sound... At, that has developed out and even out of as Irish music has gone is that there's always been these little I suppose threads that have come off and there's two or three of them have actually come off during this during this list of ten this year but John Francis Flynn and as you I, mentioned Lancome is one particular sort of a sound and this album has gone down so well Yeah and often there's the big long introductions and then you know the songs really take a long time yeah. to get going you've chosen I suppose uh, probably the most direct uh, track on the album for us This is yeah I, I wish I was a mole in the ground yeah again <laughs> another great title is it representative of the album it's it's representative probably in terms of subject but definitely not in terms of duration yeah not in terms of duration and even the style it's immediately yeah. accessible in a way some of the other tracks take a couple of listens for you to get there let's have a listen to it so uh, Mole in the Ground John from Francis Flynn Mole in the Ground I wish I was a mole in the ground If I was a mole I'd tear them Another one of those voices that just is so singular in, yeah. in the way it works. That's John Francis Flynn. And uh, amazing as to think even where it came from. You know, there's a lot of acts that you can listen to and kind of go, oh yeah, you know, that comes from music of the 80s or music of the 90s or something very, very contemporary whereas you're listening to the likes of John Francis Flynn and you're thinking, where, where has that appeared from? But, and that's a really good thing. Kojak is yes. the next one on the list. Yeah, so Dublin Rapperland, uh, uh, nominated for the Choice Prize a full five years ago, so almost vintage now at this stage, for <laughs> Jelly Daydreams, which was like a, a concept album about working in a deli and making chicken rolls, But uh, and also for Towns Dead as well. But Kojak is great, and again, another sort of musical thread, another very distinctive sound, but also somebody who loves uh, collaborations too, you know, and has got involved, and it's not just a case now of I'm just being a rapper is that people are getting involved in being entire sort of productions that they're putting together and every album is becoming a production. Yeah and, and very much in the case of Phantom of the Afters from Kojak it, it, as is expected from them it's a very Dublin album. Oh very much so very much so and sounds very Dublin which is great. E- even in the tribe did, did you, was it yourself that you, did, wanted us to play Cabra Drive? Yeah it's great too. Yeah and he kind of at the beginning you can hear the fellas talking to each other well off in the distance but then eventually they start to sing about it keepy uppies with the lads it's brilliant it's <laughs> brilliant a very, it's that's a very stuff. dumb that's Kojak Cabra Drive one of the tracks on the album Phantom of the Feathers I'm nearly halfway through uh, we're into Lancome now and False Lancome this was yeah. a huge album early on in the year this was massive like this really when you think that I suppose the, the, the Lynch boys have been around for mm. the guts of 20 years now at this stage but really into Lancome land in the mid sort of 2015s and had been big and people were talking about them and their gigs are obviously something that people talk about in a big way but really when False Lancome came along people stopped and took notice and they stopped and took notice everywhere yeah, absolutely. They're big international um, stars now in a, in a way that they hadn't been. They were certainly notable, but they they've, they seem to have broken that uh, particular market as well. Uh, Go Dig My Grave is the track that we've chosen. And quite unusually, it starts straight away. <laughs> Go Dig My Grave. 
both wide and deep. Place a marble stone, oh Lord, oh Lord, oh Lord, so it's, it's a full minute actually before yeah. the instruments come in there, and it builds from voice to voice and you know thin enough textures and it builds then as the track goes on and the 4 minutes and 35 is a radio edit it's a very brave yeah. way of making a record yeah. as well is, yeah. to, is to give songs all of that space give them all breathe. the time yes. to, yeah. to, to come into being almost yeah. uh, interesting uh, bring in a text uh, interesting text that came in in this matter as well 51551 Sean I know it's a very hard choice no pun <laughs> says, says our texter but to see a list without the Lisa O'Neill record all of this is chance is a glaring omission in my opinion. She's had such glorious reviews and recognition outside of Ireland as well. Great list apart from that, says uh, Caller 624. Yeah, no, <laughs> I guess. three digits. <laughs> no, I think that that is perfectly fair, but you will. Like when you see, as I said, when you see the list of albums that were, were released last year and you bring it down to these 10, there was always going to be albums that were absolutely worthy of inclusion mm. that aren't going to make it in. I think Lisa O'Neill definitely qualifies in that ground. All right, and I guess maybe the Lancome and John Francis Flynn, maybe they were, they were kind of aware of picking a broadness across yeah. the different genres and different styles of and music. And it definitely is a very yeah. broad selection this year. Rachel Lavelle, uh, Big Dreams, is not like anything we've heard up to this, in fact. No, oh, definitely not. And you know, it's funny because when you mentioned Lisa O'Neill there, and I, what makes me think uh, when I was listening to Rachel Lavelle was Julie Feeney, who was the winner, I think yeah. it was only the second or third, 2006, 2007. There's something similar in the voice uh, there. And it's a very, very, again, it's a very, very unusual voice. It is not something that you would expect to hear but it just all hangs together so, so well. And then to bring the lady in from the Lewis, you know, is you'll hear her in the midst of it as well. Um, the, the, the album is Big Dreams. I think we're going to play a little bit of the, the title track, in fact. So Rachel Lavelle and Big Dreams. Gentle start to this one. I came for the comedy I left for the bus There was nothing new to me I have a lot of feelings So There we go, Big Dreams. Very gentle sound from Rachel Lavelle. Um, number it's lovely. S- uh, it yeah, is beautiful, lovely. Beautiful yeah. album. And not dissimilar in terms of title is Dream Big from Soda Blonde. I spoke to them about this. I mean, this is a fabulous piece from them. Uh, you know, the, the kind of, they've reinvented themselves. Oh, absolutely, they? absolutely. And when you think about a band who came from another band, I suppose, with yeah. the sort of Little Green Cars connection. But the fir- while the first album was, I was going to say understated, which isn't a fair way of putting it, but it was quite quiet and quite introverted. It's as if this time they really really have a confidence about them and when they went to release Dream Big they've decided right we're going for it now and it it just shines through this album from start to finish you know I'm kind of thinking as I'm going along here yeah that's a contender that's a contender I now have seven contenders (laughs) and we're we're on to number eight album number eight The Murder Capital uh, uh, Gigi's Recovery again this is a this I know before I even listen is a contender as well oh absolutely absolutely and it's we're talking about bands who've made that step up you mentioned at the start that whole thing about the difficult second albums but so many acts have released really really good second albums this time around so their first album was uh, 2019 so there's been four years since there's been the singles there's been the live performance 
it used to be all a bit mad, but in a great, great yeah. way, in that sort of sort of punky sort of a way. It's a lot more focused this time around, but it's so, so very good. I had to realign to begin to survive. I gaze to the satellite. And you know, again, there we have the the eighth of our ten um, potential albums for the cho- this year's Choice Music Prize. Different sound from anything we've heard up to this. The Murder Capital. Let's move on to uh, the Scratch and and Mind Yourself. The Scratch Man, she or brother, and Mind Yourself. Again, you couldn't define what this album is. No, no. Somebody would say it said to me, so you know, when you're talking about that, it's like, well, it's kind of like they're kind of a trad metal punk mix. <laughs> like, what on earth is that? But it's just great stuff. But it's as if you can listen and kind of go. Maybe was listening to uh, Planksty Record and Chumbawamba at the same time, but the, mind yourself, is great. Yeah, and uh, again, it, 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 they're not afraid to do the long introduction and let themselves get into the song, but we hear them now getting stuck into the the track from the album that we're about to listen to, which is Mind Yourself. <laughs> Dare I suggest that if, if, if the Beach Boys were from Dublin or from <laughs> Ireland, they might sound a bit like the Scratch Banshees. Um, it's, it's great. Yeah, I, and I very quickly need want to go to the final one because I want to play a little bit of all of them. Ezra Williams, Skin 20. Yeah, so debut album. And this, do you know what? When I was listening to this, there's a lot of albums and a lot of bands who are going around at the moment and they throw every production toy possible yeah. at it. What Ezra Williams has done is prepared it all straight back. We're into sort of 1990s mouldy peaches, but the most beautiful vocal and it's simply itself on supernumeraries. Yeah, easy to say. It's for you, easy for you to say. <laughs> Here we go. Skin. I've never felt this type of cold. All right, Simon, I just get a little bit of the taste of Ezra Williams' beautiful voice, as you say, and skin. If I put you to the pin of your collar to give me a suggestion. I won't demand one off you, but maybe the real, the, the few big contenders for you. Okay, well, yeah, yeah. In, in my humble opinion, I think uh, we're talking about the the murder capital, Ezra Williams, who we've just heard, mm. and Kojak. All right, so there, there you, you go. go. Yeah, fair enough. We'll see if you are right. In when will we hear the seventh? Seventh of March. Seventh of March. The Banana Accelerationism is a new exhibition set to open at the Complex in Dublin tomorrow, 12th of January. The event will be the first art exhibition hosted in the Depot Building, a large warehouse space dipped steeped in history. Visual arts artists Sean Lynch and Laura Nilavine were invited to make a collaborative exhibition in response uh, and have been researching and working on it for over a year now. Among its many highlights, the exhibition will delve into the history of the building and the archaeology surrounding this area of Dublin North Inner City. Delighted to have Sean Lynch and Laura Nilavin in studio with me this evening. It is an extraordinarily historical spot that you're in, Sean. It is. It's a very interesting place and the complex nearly for almost two decades now have been roaming around the the northwest inner city and repurposing different buildings as an art centre and cultural location, a place for artists to work as well. And uh, for a good few years now, they've been sited yeah. in, in this location. And this is kind of the, the, the bottom end of Henry Street heading towards over in towards Smithfield and Mary's Abbey. That's, that's the for area sure. you're in. But even when we say Mary's Abbey, Laura, again, we're talking about history. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, for... 
for the kind of lead up to the show, um, Mark Gogorman, the curator, has been really generous mm. with myself and Sean. We've had lots of time roaming around <laughs> the area and within the complex, which is like a labyrinth and is, uh, yeah, 12 St. Mary's Abbey. And yeah. then the fruit market is right next door. I was going to say, if you've ever been down that area, you'll know that there's a big fruit market yeah. down there. I said at the beginning mm. of the programme tonight, we're going to talk about an, ex- an exhibition that featured rotten bananas and worms. Yep. The banana <laughs> exhibition. <laughs> Accelerationism. You might explain that term to us, Sean. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, it's always open to interpretation, you know. I suppose, first of all, the great thing was to discover that the building is leased um, from the Smith family and uh, they were involved in having millions of bananas inside and where the complex is now and they'd be ripened and then distributed all over Ireland. And, and the ripened, it, what was the fact? Because that's what the accelerationism is all yeah. about. Yeah. yeah. How were they ripened? Yeah, they're ripened with, like, still in the complex, um, there's these massive refrigerators that are now artist studios, which is really lovely, but they would have had, like, vast quantities of ethylene gas pumping out to accelerate. So to get them from the bananas from green yeah. to some form of yellow. Yeah. So this, like, fast ripening process <laughs> that had been going on there, so... We were interested in also thinking around like the chemical kind of lingering traces that might be there and this. And are there are there bananas on on display <laughs> or how have you kind of shown that to us artistically, Sean? Oh well, there is. Yeah, well, we've mm-hmm. both been at the bananas now. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, we go from bananas and then went across the road to see the great fruit market mm-hmm. that's, and all the beautiful terracotta sculptures that are present there all the time and we've got them in the show yeah. um, and we started speeding up and accelerating all the time <laughs> you know yeah. and so part of that has been working uh, with the archaeologist Ed O'Donovan because there's been a huge archaeological dig on two sides of the complex Any building. interesting finds in that dig? Oh yeah fi- over 500 skeletal remains um, uh, Ireland's largest collection so far found of uh, medieval tiles some of them are incredibly beautiful there was no lion in Ireland but the monks mm. were there making representations of lions to have on the floor of St Mary's Abbey um, and suddenly we were beginning to understand that term accelerationism as a way of linking different times yeah. and the overlay of uh, histories and life and uh, the sense of it being such a rich urban area. And what, what you know, that passing of time and what lies underground might explain the presence of the worms yeah. to us then, yeah, Laura. exactly. And I guess like thinking around, you know, and the archaeology site, uh, as part of the, the site of the complex and that kind of um, subterranean world, thinking around that. And explain and that, uh, where will I, so for some people, the, the, even the mention of worms is enough to say, I'm not going anywhere near that. So I'd explain no. what, what, the, what, how you're displaying the worms or the what worms, the, how the worms the feature. The worms are like my collaborators, our collaborators in the show. And they're, um, it's kind of as if they're in, uh, are on a hotel mini break in a sense because we were also with the idea of accelerationism thinking around like the vast amount of hotels popping up all around uh, the north, all around the city, particularly around the the complex as well. So, where I've repurposed or hacked um, hotel mini bar fridges and taken all the the chemical. Um, in uh, system you, out so and the given, worms are the, living there. Yeah, you've given the worms nice hotel The worms rooms. are living there. They're in, yeah, exactly. They're in um, 
hotel hotel rooms as fridges with uh, uh, a, a compost bedding and leaf system, and then they're they're getting nourished and their nutrients from the the. Uh, Fresh Point, one of the the Smithfield Market. Oh, there you go. Um, so they're on they're stores. on a lovely yeah. Ho- um, yeah. many many ho- hotel yeah. breakage. You and put it. So and then ne- I guess they're traversing sorry through yeah. about forty meters of the soil pipe, which is connecting. And we can see that the can we? If, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. ecology, nature. This is very much at the heart of what you're talking about. Is is yeah, the state of the that. planet? Is that part yeah, of what's on your mind here? Definitely. It, it, yeah, this yeah ideas around who an exhibition can be for, and thinking around making space for animals as well, and yeah, so giving the the earthworms the span or the mm. the whole expanse of our installation. So before she square before she meters that they're travelling through. They like it dark, so they're they're in the. I, I get the sense from what Laura's saying pipes. there, Sean, that, that there's a real, a real feeling that you want to share the planet with everybody and everything, including the worms. Is that an important aspect of what you're saying across well, the our, exhibition? Our, our feet touch the ground, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah. underneath the ground are the worms, so we're yeah. always interconnected. It's as simple as that, like you know, yeah. and. Um, like we've found another situation where we've been looking around the city at an architectural pattern called vermiculation. Mm-hmm. And you'd see it on Leinster House, for example, on bank buildings and the Irish Stock Exchange. And it's a pattern on the front of a lot of stone buildings from the 19th century of the worms eaten into the building ah, to remind it that everything yeah. goes back worms to Worms into Leinster House, people would be distraught to hear I'm that. Sure I'm, sure. I'm sure they'll be terrified. I'm sure. That's uh, Sean Lynch and Laura Lavine. Their collaborative exhibition, Banana Accelerationism, will be at the complex in Dublin, the new part of the complex called The Depot. the first visual arts exhibition there. I think it's worth mentioning that as well. It's opening tomorrow, January the 12th, and running from the 13th through until the 25th of January, the complex.ie for full information on that. And that is our lot for this Thursday evening. Paula Shields researched, Dolly Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator, Harry Bookless was on sound, and tonight's programme was produced by Sinead Egan. Back with you tomorrow night, 7 o'clock here on RT Radio 1. Ray Cuddihy will be with you after the news.